I take refuge in the Buddha, our true home that is always with us wherever we happen to find ourselves. I take refuge in the Dharma, the luminous display of all phenomena, continuously calling upon us to awaken, awaken, take heed, do not squander our lives. I take refuge in the Sangha, the vast community of living beings, opening hearts and holding space to ensure that every time we sit, we are never sitting alone. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is it. Your one and only chance to distill everything you've learned into something beneficial for each listener and reveal your greatest insights and express your inexpressible gratitude and convey what this community means to you and articulate what you're going to do with the rest of your life and projectile vomit into the crowd. Aww, me from when I first got here. How sweet of you to make it here today. Come here, you. I know I can't see moment by moment how I've changed. Even regularly wonder if I'm backsliding. But you showing up affirms just how transformative my six years of residency at Great Vow have been. Because of course, we will never be able to do it. To share our journey of loss and gain with another, articulate our most valuable lessons in a way that prevents someone from having to go through it themselves. Certainly to verbalize the nonverbal, much less plumb the depths of Dharma, may it ever be so. And yet, the simple fact of being human continuously calls upon us to offer something with our life energy. And sooner or later, we have to just go for it. If I wait until I believe I've finally got enough of a handle on myself, I will never take any growthful risks. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kosho Janet Alt. I first moved to Great Vow in the summer of 2014 and lived here for two years. Then I spent a year living at a lay Buddhist temple in Chicago while working other jobs and now have been back for four years. On Wednesday, I'm setting out on another leg of the journey that includes many unknowns and can't quite be rationalized, but emerged from a long gut investigation that included postulancy discernment for ordination. We all have an endless horizon of pure potential stretching out before, behind, and all around us. And every moment we take, every moment we take a leap of faith into the unknown. Simultaneously, one of the greatest teachings I've received here is the knowledge that in a very real way, this is all there will ever be. As Hogan Roshi said to me once, I'm sorry, but this is as good as it gets. <laughs> I'll pause and invite you to contemplate whether that's true. This is all there will ever be. And this is as good as it gets. Nothing else is guaranteed. And I've collected enough data now to conclude that waiting for the right conditions to let my life finally move in a direction I want just serves to keep me stuck in old coping habits forever. But today I can sit before you and say beyond the shadow of a doubt, the right conditions will never arrive. The stars will never align to rocket launch us into our fully empowered, most magical selves. As soon as we get one thing situated in the cupboard of the mind, another will always fall out of place. And of course we work with conditions where we have agency, do what we can to set up support structures. And the fact that nothing more is guaranteed means that every moment is pure gift. So what is actually within my ability to do sitting here right now to show up in the world in the way that I want to, no matter what happened 12 minutes or 12 years ago, or what my mind is telling me is certainly going to happen in the future? <laughs> well, perhaps we have some options. I could change the way I'm interfacing with whatever issue is at hand by employing valuable cognitive tools, like writing down five things that went well today, which has been an invaluable practice for me over the years, or dissecting the belief a la, can you absolutely know that's true? What else could be true too? Or in the case of shame-based rumination, asking, 
how would I be acting or thinking or practicing right now if that hadn't just happened? And then choosing to go down the new path anyway, because we're building new muscles here, people, and at some point I have to just be the change I want to see if I want to be it. Ugh, it's not that easy. Boo, get off the stage. If I could just change my mind, I wouldn't be here now, would I? Enter concentration practice. <laughs> I could not give a residency culmination Dharma talk without emphasizing the importance of my primary refuge the entire time I've been here. The simple yet ever unfolding process of hooking my awareness solidly to my object of concentration, which for me has been sound, over and over and over as often as I'm able to remember. Expanding awareness by turning it outward into the field of ambient sounds, listening as sharply as I can, first to the unbroken melody, then over time expanding into a three-dimensional symphony. Not labeling, but experiencing, breathing, feeling the raw sense data of sound. It's been important for me to have a primary single hook like sound. The mind is so, how do I say this nicely, prolifically generative. It's enough for me to even try to remember to concentrate, let alone pick a different hook. And sound has been so effective for me, partly because I love music. Sounds are interesting and fascinating and gorgeous to me. It's also been a helpful direct replacement to the sound of thought. Thank you. I hear you. You've definitely had your turn. Now I'm going to listen to something else for a minute. By continually turning my attention where I want it to go and holding it there, concentration practice develops plasticity of mind which has implications far beyond experiencing more subtle and beautiful sounds. We're increasing agency to choose where the mind does or does not go. Yes, we really are carving new wagon wheel ruts, and yes, at first it takes a lot of inertia to hop the curb of that well-worn track. Now, I know sound doesn't work for everyone. There are other objects of concentration and other practices that might work better for others, and I honor the limitations of my experience, which is all I can speak from. I did not start with open awareness. I started with single-pointed concentration, and slowly, one might even say excruciatingly slowly at times, started expanding that awareness. Can I hold sound while starting to bring in and expand the visual field? Can I hold and then feel sound with my entire body all at once? And of course, embodiment and light were always there, fully part of it. We're eternally experiencing the entire sense realm all at once. But in this way, of all of the skills we cultivate here, radical presence has most shifted my frame of reference for being. What do I actually mean by radical presence? I mean fully attuned to reality as it blossoms, so continuously, we can of course never grasp the present moment. I mean the endless flow of energetic particles woven into one unbroken fabric, changing as fast as we can become aware of them. For me, this tuning into the ceaseless flow has not been possible without concentration practice, employing a single hook like sound. It's teaching me, to borrow a phrase from Jogen Sensei, the experience of awareness refreshing in real time. Because sound is always present, always refreshing in real time. Just like the breath and the sensations of the vibrantly alive body to other potential concentration hooks. It's our most basic teaching, right? And yet we know it's so different from what we're taught growing up about what's important and how to effectively manage our lives, at least in the culture I'm familiar with. Thus, it's so hard to come to truly embody radical presence, understatement of the century. And I don't think Hogan Roshi would let me get away with also saying, of course, it's simultaneously the easiest, most natural way in the universe because it's always right here. How could it possibly be anywhere else? We're already always doing it, fully aware, perhaps just clouded over or distracted. And 100% supreme and total enlightenment can feel like a tall order that's hard to pare down into something usable in our daily lives. But for me... The benefit of any amount of moving from a thought-centered life to an expansive awareness and spacious mind has been so worth it that whatever this is, it's enough. And if this is all it'll ever be, that's okay.
Radical presence demands acceptance because there is no other option. I can rail against reality until I pass out from exhaustion or until the day I die, but the experience of it always just is as it is. What's happened, happened. No two ways around it. And what's happening now is happening now. We have to be fearlessly honest with ourselves about where we have agency. And that process for me has not been one of feeling small and hopeless in an ocean of forces much stronger than me. It's been wildly freeing and empowering. I can change. And since I know it's possible, I have a responsibility to actualize it. All those things I believed I desperately needed to be okay, I don't. Even in the times when I still think, well, maybe I actually do need that one, the truth is I just don't. I know now that the, tru the truer me goes much, much deeper. And of course the flow of thoughts is not separate from, but part of this experience of reality. I imagine we'll always be part of it. But to be truly radically present, I believe we have to learn to turn the volume down, even all the way down. Many, if not all of us, have spent our lives believing we are our thoughts about ourselves, and this runs so deep, even if we intellectually understand that thoughts just generate, I am not my thoughts, I know there's nobody driving the bus in there, etc. But we can hone our concentration, concentration so sharply, we experience moments of no thought at all and lengthen those moments little by little until we can eventually hold it at will. And I know it takes a long time, but I firmly believe we have so much to learn from that process. And I don't want to limit what's possible by filtering it through what experience is already known to me. To not be satisfied by, I'm concentrated enough, my awareness is open enough, I get no self. As soon as I believe these, the unending process of awakening is dead. In moments like this, I enjoy reminding myself in the spirit of the great Inigo Montoya, you keep using those words. I do not think they mean what you think they mean. <laughs> so I simultaneously hold the gratitude that whatever this is, it's enough. And as our ceremony boldly declares, infused with the great determination of Kashiti Garba Bodhisattva, protector of all that is born from the earth, May I walk the path to enlightenment, dissolving all obstructions and never turning back. This slow but crucial process of learning to concentrate opens us to the mysterious and fascinating investigation of, so what is this thinking mind anyway? What is it exactly that I consider myself? By learning to slow the mind stream, we create enough space around thought to really see what's going on in there. And I don't just mean classifications of, oh, there's judging others again, weighing pros and cons, hot fantasy, delusions of grandeur, or replaying mortifying moments. But what is every single thought actually made of, actually doing? For me, I spent a long time looking hard at all these classifications and saw first how much of my mental activity was replaying events, replaying events or fantasizing potential ones on a loop again and again and again, seemingly, I guess, to figure out how to prevent what I don't like while lacerating myself to make sure I really get the message and then magically manifest what I do like while receiving a small dopamine hit in the process. <laughs> And by studying it, I came to see this method is not very effective at achieving its desired end, to say the least. Okay, truth is, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, this method destroys lives. And of course, human minds have all kinds of variations on this theme. But as time went on, I began digging deeper into their essence and noticing some very interesting attributes. For example, they all seem to be the timber of this voice, which I'm not really sure where I hear it, talking to someone, almost as if for an imagined future something, but it's unclear what that might be. I don't mean rehearsing potential future conversations. I mean every thought being a kind of projection of myself, even if it's not visual, reciting statements to some imagined other. Even the most vicious inner critic is just the sound of this voice yelling, you suck! or I suck, to whom though? Even what I believe to be just me thinking to myself feels like 
I want to say practicing saying it to someone else. It's just a conjured image of me that is not my embodied experience. So as a practice, I stop and ask myself, wait, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? And for that matter, who is even asking this question to whom? Who decides what's going to pop in there? So the entirety of what I believe to be myself is just ethereal projections of light and sound, essentially acting out being a person. So that only takes a couple of minutes to say, and as we know, when we really start digging into the nature of mind and self, we're in for some earth-shattering disintegration. I mean, it's revolutionary stuff, right? We're truly not bound by any belief we've ever had. There's a very real way in which we moment by moment construct our world. And while the unraveling process is not for the faint of heart, this is a pathway to a freedom. It's certainly not the only pathway, and it's not the only freedom. But I'm sorry I can't think of a more poetic or in-depth way to say this. It's helped me so much. And I carry bottomless gratitude for this community that has held me while undertaking this messy, painful process, let me fall apart completely, and allowed me to change and grow without trying to stuff me back into the person I was before who just doesn't fit anymore. And I know this very long journey is never over, but endlessly unfolds. Each of us must claim our awakened birthright. No one else will do it for us. There are no magical solutions, such as, through osmosis, I will become like this person if I follow them around, though we can certainly be inspired by someone's striking presence of mind. And I also believe one reason a Dharma teacher decides to teach is in the hope that by offering the wisdom gained from their pitfalls, the process could be faster for those who come next. I'm thinking of when the Buddha developed severe anorexia, though we never call it that, his ascetic phase. Thank goodness he could tell others, look, I went really far down that road and it does not lead to enlightenment. Now for those of us who've tried, and we've all tried all sorts of things, we can feel gratitude that every single agony and trauma we went through taught us and brought us to practice. We had to go through exactly what we went through. At the same time, I remember reading early on that the understanding of Dharma must increase with every successive generation, and a teacher's greatest wish is to bring up students who go on to understand it better than them. I felt a mild shock and a sigh of relief when I read this, and it was one of the early moments that made me think, okay, maybe I can start to trust Buddhism, even though it is considered a religion, which still sounds strange to me. But this idea is also culturally revolutionary, and certainly every generation in every context has to deal with the question of how much to hold to tradition versus how much to allow innovation. But I know people, myself included, can harbor a sense of, these kids, they're coming up from behind, or I had to go through this, and so they should too. But one thing I've really appreciated about Great Vow is the opportunity to live and work intimately with people older and younger than me. I've met people 15 years younger who are far more mature than I was at that age and spout great wisdom and equanimity around things I still really struggle with. And we can tend to think, oh, I know better. Surely there's a lot else going on. They'll see when they're older, etc. When we could remember this Dharma teaching and feel relief that, ah, things are operating smoothly and perhaps we are even moving toward collective liberation. And simultaneously, young people can tend to mistrust elders, saying they know better, the world has changed a lot, etc. And yet there is undoubtedly much wisdom that only comes from significant losses, life experience, practice, and time. Though we all have a different path. So the point I'm trying to make is that we absolutely need everyone's unique lived experience to guide us toward a more awake society. And this, of course, goes way beyond age, but is true of all biases and preconceived notions we have towards each other. We have no idea where someone, what someone else is working with. And if they genuinely move toward awakening, we all move. The needle moves. As such, I believe there is no best sharer of the Dharma. No one's got it the most. We need many different ways of sharing because people have such different experiences. There are no shortcuts to awakening, and comparison is moot. If somebody busts out deep Dharma wisdom, and we feel the sinister fingers of envy or self-criticism wriggling over us, 
we can rest in knowing that if, if their insight is genuine and not just pretty words, they worked for every ounce of it, maybe even over the span of lifetimes. And since we know well how hard that is, we know it's worthy of respect. We also know it's possible for us too. As I continue, I'd like to weave in a few cautionary tales of some of the potholes and hurdles I've run into, shadow sides or misinterpretations of the teachings, things to watch out for, if you will. Certainly, emphasizing constant mindfulness can trigger black and white perfectionism in the mind, reminiscent of the days when I dutifully subscribed to that line of thinking. Sit up straight as an arrow, graceful hands, silent footsteps, tiny bites, Every move you make must be an efficient yoga posture while also presenting you from the most attractive angle to anyone who might glance upon you. <laughs> oh, my skin is crawling just saying those words. And I'm speaking as someone socialized as a woman. There are other ways this can manifest, of course. For example, you must always carry yourself strong and upright, stable, unemotional, and unaffected, yet swift and decisive. Could be another flavor. <laughs> And meanwhile, it lashes out painfully at others. Look at them, they're so perfect, or at least think they are. They always move like a professional gymnast while also being so attractive, flowers wither in shame around them, etc. <laughs> when for all we know, they're fighting a killer critic too, and just grimly holding on, trying their best to come into their body for the first time in their life. And I know the practice of constant mindfulness is in service of increasing felt body experience. But I think we need to be really honest about this shadow side in which attentiveness can spiral into some obsession with a very narrow, rigid view about the correct way to be that just so happens to align with some impossible cultural standards we've been force-fed since birth. And it breaks my heart when my, mind teach, when my mind warps the teaching in this way. Because another of the greatest gifts I've re received here that's remaking my life is the power of true, neutral embodiment. Please don't get me wrong, it's one of the hardest things I've ever hoped to do. I still often flinch and convulse when I try to do it. Just last week I told Chozen Roshi, even after all this time, I still hold a fixed belief that the experience of existing in a body is fundamentally painful and bad. She gently reminded me of Hogan's practice of investigating sparking life energy, trillions of tiny cells, each one an individually alive factory, all working together to make this whole I call me. And as usual, I replied that I know that I know these things somewhere in there, that if I say painful or bad, I'm adding something, and stripped bare of the subtlest mental conjecture, the neutral tingling sensation is pleasant. Believe me, I recognize this can be a hard sell. We must each investigate it ourselves. We hear all the time that the body has the potential to be a constant refuge we can tap into at any moment, the formless field of tiny touches, as Chosen calls it. And Zazen helps us feel this fully without distraction in the still posture. Ritual can also help by configuring the body into positions that evoke care, humility, or gratitude within us, such as bowing, gasho, offering incense, yoga, or practicing loving hands with everything we touch, to name a few. Similarly to mindfulness, there is a way that an emphasis on precepts and ethics can be triggering for those of us with an overblown 12-year-old puritanical moral judge alive within us. Not naming any names. <laughs> of course, this is vital, central study and work on the Buddhist path. The issue for me, again, arises when the mind misconstrues the teachings into black and white thinking. Holding oneself to an exacting standard in which one toe out of line makes her a monster while simultaneously hating herself for being such a prude. And interestingly enough, this 12-year-old is standing right next to the rebellious teenager within who's yelling, you can't tell me what to do! It's a confusing way to live. I'm remembering diaries I had from middle school full of things like, damn it, they're lying to me! I'm sorry I said that, Lord. <laughs> but these parts of me feeling provoked could not keep me away from practice. I was just so tired of the battle. It was no longer about doing it right or wrong, being the best or worst, but because I was fed up with feeling condemned to eternal hell. 
Coming to Great Vow, moving across country to a place where I didn't know anyone, it didn't overwhelm me this time. I really just did not care anymore. I needed so desperately to free myself from that mind. And for me, that's where concentration practice came in. And I could quickly start to see that it actually feels better and works better to be present and embodied without thoughts attached. It feels better to not lie or manipulate or numb out, to concentrate on sound rather than think about sex for an entire session or 20. Feels better to talk openly rather than gossip and criticize others in secret. Works better to speak gently rather than ragefully to oneself. And it is not the end of the world when we screw up. Whether we believe it's a big screw up or a small one, all we can do is own it and move on. There's no set formula for how to grow into our integrity. Sometimes it's pushing harder and sometimes it's pulling back. Sometimes it might mean allowing, allowing more messiness or looseness. What we're going for is not saying this is how you should be or what you should do, but here is a method for uncovering the gut wisdom voice that's inherent to all of us. And part of my interest in stepping out of the monastic container revolves around exploring methods to dismantle our unique conditioning. I feel compelled to learn more language around liberation from societal expectations and paradigms of oppression in all its relative manifestations. So continuing along with the shadow side of constant mindfulness, a huge part of life here is the forms we keep. From not wearing hats in the zendo, to the zazen posture, to the speed of bell ringing, to trying to make an equidistant semicircle before work, I swear we'll get that someday, Roshi. <laughs> I mean, this is the training, right? The choreographed dance of movement and stillness we can release into to free up the space, time, and energy for more round-the-clock concentration and awareness practice, including letting go of the clock. When the stakes are the great matter of birth and death, does it really matter if I don't like the way we fold the table wiping cloth or if Shashu is held at the belly button or solar plexus? We have the forms so we don't have to cogitate about them. We can just configure the body in a predetermined way and focus on our practice. I'm guessing some of you may already be spotting potential shadow sides here. This can really trigger the mind of doing it wrong, follow the rules, there's one right way or get people anxious about how to remember everything or what to do when I simply don't know what the form is. And certainly all ways of doing things reach a point where they may need to be re-examined and changed for something more skillful considering the context. But we have many form details and a lot of energy, especially from long-term residents, goes into upkeeping them and, re and reminders about minutia of the way we do things here. It's a big part of the work. And even though I know what it's in service of, it can be hard over spans of years to keep emphasizing things like quiet dorms or please wear shoes to the cafeteria or please use the restroom before work circle, hold it this way, put your foot here, etc. If I start to feel like it's just nitpicky or if I'm unable to see the way in which form reminders help us all move toward awakening, it can become wearisome and disheartening. And I've never even been shuso. So I can't speak to that experience. Maybe the continuity and intensity of that role ultimately helps one break through and find the joy in the work. I don't know, because I do know these feelings are not inevitable, and there is great joy and kindness in upholding form. There's a way to do it so it's utterly non-personal, simple, and joyful, because it is utterly non-personal, simple, and joyful. It's not a correction to follow the rules. It's a small mindfulness detail that really isn't that big a deal. But the whole training is how all these components come together into a harmonious flow that allows us to focus on meditation rather than getting hung up on them. The regular practice of both giving and receiving form reminders has overall had a greatly beneficial effect on me. I no longer get worked up into such a reactive tizzy when someone reminds me of something I already knew I agreed to but didn't feel like doing that day. And asking people to do something different was agonizing for me to learn, terrifying even. They'll be, heaven forbid, mad at me. <laughs> but learning how to simply and neutrally say, hey, could you do it this way instead? Or hey, just a reminder about quiet, quiet morning work period is a very important skill to learn, of course, with humility and openness to the possibility that I may be the one who doesn't remember the form or may be too rigidly attached to form. I certainly don't want my world to come crashing down because someone blew their nose in the zendo. I'm going to jump right into my last cautionary tale and come clean with you. 
I've spent a lot of time obsessing about myself. <laughs> now, please let me explain. I know, <laughs> I know zazen is in service of seeing through the self, and ultimately that's been more liberating than ever, anything else I've ever done in my entire life. But through this process, I've discovered I'm liable to spend forever enchanted by my own mental states, as David Lloyd describes it, which of course include the state of my body, my habits, my wants and needs, romantic or social life, etc. I believe learning how to concentrate even really, really well isn't the only thing needed to move from a self-referential life to a life in service of oneness. I think it's crucial to have some kind of social action and community service to counter this trance, and I encourage residents to keep this at the forefront of their minds. I know this is central to the Bodhisattva path, and the Roshis constantly remind us to ask, am I benefiting others? How could I be of more benefit now? And certainly residential training affords the opportunity to throw oneself into the community completely, be available, and release personal preferences. This is a cautionary tale about the potential I know in myself to fall into, what is my mind doing now? How about now? I can't believe what my mind is doing now. I am like this. My practice is going this way. Is this food good for my practice? Why didn't I sleep well last night? What does it mean for my practice? Etc. In a mild to full-blown obsession. I know we all know that a life of deep intention to benefit others is such a relief from the pain of a self-referential life. We move from fixation on our insights to simply and freely sharing insight with others, not because we're identified with it or wish to gain anything at all, but because we know we're all working with a lot of the same stuff. And this insight really helped me, so maybe it could help others too. Not to mention all the other ways we move from fixation on our states to freely offering support. And I know that ardent practice reveals to us the pain of a self-referential life. Chosen says, in a way, it doesn't matter what motives bring us to practice. The practice will clean them up and clean us out. So maybe this is just me asking you to please practice ardently, friends. One note here, I say self-referential because I've never felt great about using self-centered in this context. Thinking mind thinks about itself. It's just what it does. And most of the people I've met who come here have plenty of inner critic and don't need to heap, how could you be so self-centered just thinking about yourself all the time, believing you're special, that everyone's looking at you and thinking about you on top of it. But there's a way we interface with existence that I'm referring to that can be based inward. I am a brain with two round windows looking out or outward. I am nothing more or less than all of this because that's what my direct experience is. And when I look deeply at thought, I find no controller or substance. And of course, it's also such a relief to learn that people are not, in fact, thinking about us very much at all. It means we're free to just do our best going about our lives. So perhaps we can simply say without judgment, oh yeah, there's the mind which functions to think about itself. Living that way is not working for me anymore. And when we really turn outwards, all of our troubles are put into perspective. Bearing witness to the suffering of others immediately shows us how much we have to be grateful for. None of my personal anxieties matter much in the context of something as huge and collective as the climate crisis, for example. The majority of my obsessions become immediately petty. And even our very deepest losses and traumas are put into a much larger, ancient, and cosmic context when we orient outwards. And yet, all of it does matter too. Of course it does. This is our daily life we must manage. And I do believe our struggles have a sacred, purifying quality. We don't need to demean them. And I honor my grief. But to truly face the climate crisis, I believe we need to realize how vast we are. Confronting forces so massive, we can easily become overwhelmed and feel small. And in, of course, some ways, we are minuscule. We do have only a small part to play. None of us is going to solve the climate crisis or save the world. But I can't tell you how much this practice of turning outward and experiencing the truth of our vastness 
has changed my relationship to my own death. The value of that gift cannot be overstated. Death acceptance work, I think, is vital in climate work because it allows us to act without attachment to the results of what we do. In a way, I know the result. I'm going to die. I will be forced to let go of attachment to comfort and even this body. So it seems a good idea to start practicing now. Even the fantasy of having a comfortable life until we die peacefully in bed at a ripe old age having left an impactful legacy It may be important to examine how this fantasy is serving us. We can grieve the loss of its uh, soothing reassurance. But the truth of one mind holds us much more securely, deeply, and safely. I no longer believe that I am an individual consciousness trapped in a body that dies. And in a way, that changes everything. Another reason I'm stepping out of residency is to devote more time and energy to studying how spiritual practice can help a global society facing deep transformation and the collapse of much that was known. I look forward to studying how these matters are being discussed in many circles. And in the end, simply, I've received so much here, and I'm excited to bring that out into a new context and put it to functioning in another way. Well... I'm 11 pages in, and I didn't even talk about how much I've learned from the forest and grounds, from chanting practice, from sharing living space, or the beautiful, clear, potent imagery inscribed within me from experiencing everything more fully here during Sashin. But this is what came out of my heart this week, and the story is never written. Please accept these words as one woman's experience. My narrative of the monastery and of practice will not be yours, with all our unique karma, habits, affinities, and Mara cocktails. (laughs) If anything resonated with you, may it be of benefit and ripple forward so that you go on to understand and embody, practice, realize, (laughs) and manifest the teachings better than me. an impossible task, Roshi. <laughs> Give a summary of your residency here. You were the first person I met here. <laughs> and uh, it was in the greenhouse, as I remember it. And um, I remember that first period of time we worked a lot in the garden together. And we had a lot of conversations. And a lot of them were touchy. <laughs> I just remember a lot of going over a lot of things. Um, and at the same time, I can remember a very long period of time where we both did a lot of growing. I can remember you being a lot of different people. <laughs> and imagine I was probably a lot of different people at different times, too. Um, I know that my growth has been very closely tied to you a lot of the time. And it's um, amazing to see you calm and happy. (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Kevin. That means a lot to me. <laughs> I love you too. And thank you for um, the um, graceful way you said that and didn't detail what a complete mess I was when you first met me. <laughs> And thank you for what you've gone on to do. You trained here for quite a while and um, yeah, are now are, are paying that forward. Thank you. I think uh, you and Ian were about equal messes, so. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, don't forget my forest friend. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Hogan once described Mioyu and I as feral cats. When we first got to the monastery, that would just immediately run, get scared and run into the forest and disappear. <laughs> Expansive. Humming. Alive. how it resonates with my own experience, which I don't know if it's the same as yours. Um, but the first thing that popped into my mind was actually one time I was asking Jogan how to work with getting an incessant song stuck in my head. Um, and he said, you know, don't try to reject it. It's just another sound that you're hearing along with all these other sounds at the same time. So if you just hear them all, it's all sound practice and that it, it goes away on its own much faster that way. Um, what I hear you describing is a resistance to breaking concentration and... Yeah, it's kind of like, 
I'm concentrating here, people, nobody bother me. <laughs> and people meaning the other thoughts and sensations and things? Uh, meaning anything that might bother me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there's been times where you know, really, like, it, this, my, my thread of concentration was, was a tiny thread, and it was tenuous, and I was sort of grimly holding on, you know, like, there's all this other stuff happening, but there's this, this thing that's always there, too, that I know is always there, no matter what else is there. So it's like, you know, it's, it is already continuous, so the putting more pressure on myself to make it continuous, I find was counterproductive. And so it might just be like, sound, something else, something else, something else, sound, something else, something else, something else, sound, but I'm still returning over and over and over again, rather than sound, unbroken, you know. <laughs> Do you want to add anything else to that? Um, I would like to add that I love the sound of your voice, and I'm grateful for all the nights in Sashin where it's mm. been the last thing that I've heard mm. before I go to bed. Thank you. And I want to see you a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I had gotten time. I wish I had talked about chanting practice, but another day, another time. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I know that if I'm not able to find home wherever I am, then I will never be able to find it. Um, and really, to me, it is about true neutral embodiment. Um, and it really is about learning how to hold spacious mind. Um, I really do see those things as a, a refuge that is not dependent on any conditions. And of course, you know, I had to go through this whole process to learn that, this whole training, this time, and, and you know, just to just start learning it. Um, but I, I, really, I really do feel a lot less, um, a lot less desperation to try to get out of my body or change my, the way it's feeling or... Um, line up the right conditions that will let my life begin blossoming. Um, that's changed a lot and through those practices I mentioned. Is that what you were asking? That's <laughs> exactly what I was asking, and, and I felt that in you, and it's helped me to hmm. find that groundedness too. So um, thank you, and I hope you keep finding home wherever, wherever you go. Thank you. And of course, it's, you know, it's always like this. Like I mentioned just last week, I told Chosen the body's painful. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I mean, and really, it's it's just a, it's another it's been another great boon to my um, my concentration and my body embodiment practice. It just sort of is a kind of Kickstarter, or I can't remember. I can't know the word I'm thinking of, but. Um, you know, if you're leading the chant, I've, I've found that I really have to be right there. Um, you know, everyone is sort of fall, falling into your voice. And so any distraction, and Chosen talks about this in Marimba, as soon as you get distracted, you miss a note. <laughs> um, and so I think it's true. Uh, I've done it many times. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I'm trying to invite everyone's voice into this 
boat, and so I have to have a container large enough to hold that um, with my voice as the as chant leader. And then the 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 part about um, full embodiment is just I mean toning is such an important practice to me because it's it's body awareness and it just adds another element that it's it's in a way it's a, another concentration hook, you know that helps us feel it more fully because of the resonance of our vocal cords we can feel it resonate in our whole body. I love chanting with my hands on my chest and feeling that resonance. Um, so yeah, they've been that's been the biggest aids for me body embodiment and concentrating through that practice. I also just want to give a shout out to simple human joy of singing and joining our voices together, coming together in one voice. I was not expecting how moving that would be for me when I, when I moved here, uh, how meaningful that experience would be, just depression medicine for me. Please always step forward. Mm. If you get a chance to give a talk, please do it. If you get a chance to sing, please do it. If you get a chance to talk about the environment, please do it. Please always step forward and just do your your uh, wholehearted jam, kosher alt self. I think it will always be an interest and a benefit to whoever you congratulate the others. Always step forward. Thank you, you Roshi. <laughs> somebody else would like to say something, I think this is a good place to thank you very much, Kosho, for your many Dharma talks this morning. Thank you. I um I asked the Shuso if it might be possible for us to um do the Dalai Lama's vow. If that sounds okay. So it's on page seventy-nine, I think. Space and